Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Before we get started, first, we just want to acknowledge that in Elixir, we have a global community. We've interviewed folks in Russia, Elixir you know, enthusiasts in Russia, and we, we know that there's a large community in Ukraine as well. So even our cohorts and our friends you know, are, are affected by this. And we realize that Elixir has a large community in Eastern Europe. So a lot of us are going to be feeling this, and it's, it's a sad state of affairs. So we really hope for a resolution and peace. With that said, let's talk about the news. The Erlang Ecosystem Foundation will hold elections soon, and they're always looking for candidates who want to contribute to the Erlang Ecosystem. So if you are thinking of running and want to understand what's involved, check out the link in the show notes where a blog post lists the duties and covers some of what's involved with it and explanations about how the foundation operates. You have until the end of the day, March 10th, to be added to the ballot, and voting will begin uh, about a week later and last until March 18th. It feels like lots of gleam things have been happening lately. There's a, there's a, a momentum of gleam. So gleam 0.20 has released. And so there's lots of good things that, that came out in this. First up is a basic exhaustiveness checking. So you can create custom types in gleam. And so one example is that you might have dog and cat as part of the animal. <laughs> feels weird to use such an inheritance <laughs> example here, but... If you were to add a new type to that, the compilers now supports a limited form of, of checking for those custom types. So it will warn you as it compiles if you have a, a case statement, for example, on that union type if you're not catching you know, your new type. That's really cool. You catch a lot of errors that way, I'm sure. Yeah, another thing I saw that was in that Gleam 0.20 release is compilation from WebAssembly. So the Gleam compiler itself can now be compiled to and used from WebAssembly. So this enables Gleam code to be compiled in various new places, most notably within web browsers from JavaScript code. Very interesting stuff. And it looks like GitHub now also recognizes Gleam. So Gleam source code will now be syntax highlighted on GitHub, and Gleam will show in the list of all languages for a given repo. When asked if this was due to their work on a tree sitter parser, Louis Pilfold, the project creator, explained that it wasn't about tree sitter. It's just that we have enough usage to be accepted now. Perhaps that's like a, this is like a new metric for language recognition. Does GitHub identify this as an independent language, as a recognized language? Recently, Elixir got an official tree sitter parser and that helped enable code navigation inside of GitHub. But the, for Gleam here, we're just taking a step back. It, it, just a, like a week or two ago, if you looked at Gleam source code on GitHub, it would just be all gray text. Nothing, it wouldn't be recognized as Gleam. But now it's at least syntax highlighted, but code navigation isn't, isn't there yet. But it could be now, now that they have a, a working tree sitter parser. So maybe that'll come in time. So that, that's an that's exciting development. And I'm glad to see that the tools are being developed. You know, the developer experience in Gleam is, is really improving. So speaking of, Louis also shared that work has begun on the Gleam language server, which is always a huge step for developers enjoying programming in any language. I know that when Elixir got a language server, I was very excited about that because that means I can get code introspection, I can get auto-completion, all that kind of stuff. And now Gleam is going to get that here, I don't know, in the coming weeks or months, whenever that's finished. But I'm glad to see that it's being worked on. 
Next up, a new performance analyzing library released by Dockyard called FlameOn. They're calling this a Flame Graph Live View Component and Live Dashboard Plugin. The screenshots show it configured as a Live Dashboard Plugin, so it displays a Flame Graph in the Live Dashboard. There's an accompanying blog post that explains more about it, and we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. But if you're not familiar with the Flame Graph, then definitely check out the blog post, which explains it better. It's just a way of visually stacking function calls by their call stacks and the amount of time that they've spent there. And then it also uses colors to communicate information. They usually look like a flame. I think it's pronounced flame on. Oh, my bad, my bad. bad. (laughs) With gusto. No, that'll be pretty cool because then it'll, I don't know, maybe that's bad to run in production, but imagine debugging some horrible thing and live dashboard is just out there in production already. Like we have it running on one of our apps behind, you know, admin authentication and just an easy way to get something out there temporarily. I have to look into it and see if it's, if it's production friendly or if it's just going to nuke your whole instance. Yeah. That's a good question because I hadn't had a chance to look into this very deeply yet, but it is the case with some of these types of things that you can enable them maybe per request. So you could have it, deployed and available in production, but maybe not applied to every request. And then I can say, turn it on right now for, for me at this time, because I'm debugging something in a production environment. I don't know, because, like, okay, so this is their words. So I'll just, I'll just read what they say. So FlameOn should not be used in critical production environments because it uses eFlambe, which uses mech there you go. under the hood. So it swaps out beam code pass and injects mock code that in- includes tracing. So, so no. Don't do so it. No. <laughs> no, no, don't, don't do that. But if you do need to use it to diagnose a specific issue, they recommend rebuilding or restarting the node after running it. So basically, get it out there real quick, do the request, and then restart it. <laughs> Put it back to normal. <laughs> if you can do that easily and quickly, hey, then then sure. But I just think it's cool that it plugs into Live Dashboard because it's like it's already a tool that some people might be using in their live views, and you don't have to go make a new UI or a new path or a new route. And they do talk about in the blog post, if you're not using Live Dashboard, then you can you can still use this. It's just a live view, right? So the page is just a, a wrapper around displaying the live view. So you can still mount it on some whatever page you want. So you don't have to use Live Dashboard. So that was pretty cool that, that they allowed for that. Well, there you have it. Real-time research. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're going to have a discussion because recently we talked with Derek Reimer in episode 86 about how his company was using Elixir and how he created SavvyCal and how he was doing a lot of this as like a solo dev. And it just made me think a lot. And really, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I've been mentioning this idea that I think Elixir is really well suited for being a small team's tool that really gives you leverage. And it was our discussion with him that kind of helped coalesce and some of these ideas and refine some of these ideas. I just wanted to talk about some of these with you guys and just kind of see if we're all on the same page and just where we think things can go. But mainly, I, I think the first point is, is I think live view is part of that secret power. Well, before we dive into the topic, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. <laughs> why, don't you why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you're doing? What, you know, where, where do you work? Where do you live? Oh, that's fun. That's true. I haven't talked about myself in a long time since maybe episode <laughs> zero or something. <laughs> My name is Mark Erickson. I work at fly.io. 
and I live in Southern Utah. So I moved down to Southern Utah, like with when the whole pandemic was starting to kick up. And I was like, wow, you know, I, if I'm going to be working remote, I want to work somewhere where I really enjoy being. And so I moved to Southern Utah and it's like, this is the best winter I've ever had. <laughs> so I love it. I need to go move to Hawaii. I keep, I, I you know, since the remote thing. Yeah. You know what? Oh, Speech, yeah. Speeches, great weather all the time. Just the occasional hurricane, I guess. Get your Starlink subscription going <laughs> yeah. so you can sit anywhere on any beach on any side of the island and you're covered. Yep. I need to visit Southern Utah. I've, I've, I've heard good things. So that's pretty cool. You know, and, and I heard that Fly, you know, was doing some stuff in Live View. Yeah. Isn't there an app where you, where, where if you create an app on Fly, it's, it's actually done in, that's a little Live View app. Is that true? Do I remember right? Yeah, actually I created that. That was the Fly launcher. So you say, I want to launch a Live Book app. So I got that started, but then some other people ended up doing a great job and taking that even further, like bringing in live logs being displayed as it's going through. Like I didn't do any of that. That's all just been awesome stuff that's kept going. And then also uh, Live View has been playing a much bigger role in the admin side. Like as you log into your own account and seeing the list of all of your apps and everything, like that's all now moving into Live View as well. Very cool. It's been very successful. Yeah, would you consider Fly is still a small business, or are they are they small? Would you consider them small? <laughs> Fly is still small. We ended up getting a large VC funding round that came in, and so the hiring has been growing as we've been expanding and taking on more more features and more things. But yeah, it's it's still quite small, which is nice, and it's a primarily technical team. There's a lot of the people who are doing the work are actually the ones who are pitching in in the forums and helping answer technical questions. I like that though. So that's pretty cool to see that like, yeah, it's a small, a small business. Like I guess, yeah, I consider fly pretty small too, but we were talking to Derek and that's obviously like very small, two people <laughs> Yes, <laughs> and kickstarting their, their product there, or, or in your case, like kickstarting like a, a cool feature, you know, with, with live view is really enabled you to be super productive really quickly. And so I think you're about to get into your topic. This is something I've been thinking about for a long time, right? And it's been changing slowly. Like recently, there was that GitHub article where GitHub wrote a blog post about LiveView. And that's like one of those, probably the first big marker for me in the sands of like tracking these things of a large outside of our community player talking about how there's, there's a shift happening. Maybe we're on the cusp of something, but it's still it's slow. It's a slow process. And I think still there's a lot of people who really underestimate the impact and change that LiveView represents. And they maybe discount it unnecessarily. It's tough though, because you know, I also think as LiveView was being developed, there were points along that path where it was kind of too early to adopt it for a lot of people. But I think now it's to that point where with the level of maturity and the features, that's like, wow, this is, I think this is the time to really consider it and jump in if you haven't already been looking at it. I think I can agree with you to a certain extent that there, some people are still underestimating the, the impact of Live View. Like I've, I've seen a bit of pushback myself. I don't know. Did you guys ever read this article some, titled something along the lines of give it five minutes where it's just saying like, you should listen to people before you just immediately discount what they're saying, like give them five minutes or give the topic five minutes. You know, it challenges a lot of ideas, LiveView does, and it changes things in such a way that like it's it's pretty easy to immediately just discount it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value. 
I've certainly done that. You know, somebody starts talking about something and I'm just like, you're crazy. And then, but they keep on going or they're just weakly making their point at first. You know, they didn't, they didn't start strong, but, but, you know, giving them the five minutes to like speak their piece. I was like, Oh, you know what? I think you do have like a really good point here. Like there's some, there's some pieces here that we could really, you know, go, go run with would be really good to, to go for. There was an early episode of ours with Caleb Porzio who's the creator of Alpine JS and PHP as Laravel Livewire. As much credit as, as he deserves, there is like a distinction that I, I want to make sure that we don't forget between Livewire and LiveView. And that Livewire is, you know, Ajax driven, but it has the effect in the developer experience a bit of what LiveView is. A little, obviously without gen servers and the multi-process kind of thing. But that that easier path to like liveish interactive, you know, components on a page. It was easy for me to like. All right, when I was first learning about LiveWire, I was like, ah, you know what? It's not going to be as impactful as like something like LiveWire. But obviously, I'm wrong there because like LiveWire is impactful, just in a different community. I'm glad you brought up the whole idea of Caleb Porzio because it was that article from GitHub where they actually interviewed Chris McCord. Not just Chris McCord, but they also reached out to Caleb Porzio and other people who are also pushing forward on this idea of doing server-side renders, but having that really dynamic interface where it's being pushed to the client, where the HTML changes are able to come down really small and just kind of merge in, and you get that dynamic front-end feel like it's all JavaScript, but it's not. And I remember I was really impressed when we talked with Caleb about how there's still a lot of business value you get just from what that whole aspect is doing. Now, Live View with Phoenix is doing more because of WebSockets, because of PubSub, because of clustering, and I can push state changes down to the client that aren't client-initiated. But even just with the client-initiated only Live Wire aspect, there's still a lot of business value. And I just want to make sure that we kind of touch on this every once in a while to make sure people are aware of the business value because you you might, a lot of times I think people just discount it saying, well, it's different. We already have a bunch of JavaScript on the front end. You know, there's, there's reasons where they just disregard it. Yeah. I wouldn't consider myself a superstar developer. Like I wouldn't be able to just create something that was impressive on my own, but I feel like tools like LiveView and LiveWire and I'm sure others they get you there so quickly that it, it gives other people the, the illusion that you're a superstar developer. <laughs> you know, taking the superstar part out of it. I think, I think the point is, is that, yeah, productivity is just so much better. I guess where, I, where I'm trying to go with this is that it's exposing underlying features of Erlang so well. When I first came into Elixir, I didn't know about PubSub. I didn't care about clustering. I'm starting to see the problem space now. Now I, I recognize that there are solutions that are already built into Elixir and Phoenix and you know, just need a little bit of help getting the massive exposure that could be really helpful, like, like clustering. Like when, when would clustering you know, be helpful? I, everyone's going to tell you as a small product, you don't worry about clustering at, at first. You know, but at some point of growth, you're going to want to care about that. And LiveView you know, is a little bit more sensitive to clustering too because LiveView has that WebSocket communication back from the server to the front end. 
you know, there's better places for some interactions, you know, to, to live in the front end versus going to the back end. But clustering is something that can help cover that gap. And I can do that with LiveView, you know, in Elixir. I have no clue where to start with, with PHP. I, I obviously, because I'm not a PHP developer, I wouldn't know, but I recognize that Elixir is built for this because of the power that Erlang has brought it, but also the developer experience tools that Elixir and the ecosystem has brought to it. Coming back to this idea of what really inspired me, I guess, from Derek's discussion about what he's doing at SavvyCal and just being a solo developer on that project for so long is that he, he really kind of identified that you want to cut out those areas that cause friction just in the development process. And so one of the, his examples was going with a Phoenix monolith, not getting all creative with how it's structured, architected, microservices, nothing like that, right? Like it's all about removing friction. And that's where I think LiveView is like a huge friction remover. I just want to hit on a couple of these points to make sure you, dear listener, if you've been kind of maybe on the fringe of Elixir or you're like in Elixir, but you haven't really played with LiveView at all, really, then here's some points to, to consider. And one of those is that I don't have a separate JavaScript front end. What's special about a JavaScript front end is it's a whole different language. It's a different framework because, you know, maybe I've got Vue.js or I've got React.js or but then there's other points of friction with that. Like you're dealing with the whole build chain and all the, the tooling of the JavaScript front end. And then you say, well, I'd like to be able to have tests that make sure that what I have on my front end works all the way through to the back end. And getting that sort of testing is really complicated. Most people just skip it. And then you, then you have this other layer of friction where I say, if I'm doing JavaScript on my front end, I end up having to duplicate some business logic about when is this feature allowed or this button is enabled? Like what goes into making this be enabled? Like that's business logic. There's another one too, like where like there's no web API to connect the front end of the back end. I always felt like that one is where tech debt creeps up. That's a big one. No API is by far the best API I've ever seen. Yeah. And while there's like, I don't have to worry about serialization and deserialization and stuff like that. I know it's technically still happening under the hood. It's just taken care of for me, you know, through, through live view, at least the, the elimination of that, that source of tech debt is, is huge for me. I, I love that part of it. The software doesn't play well to certain situations, right? If you're building a small business that is offering different clients an iOS an Android, a Mac, a windows, a Linux, you have to have APIs, right? But if you have the luxury of not offering those clients and you have the luxury of just building some kind of web app, I think it's a no-brainer. Maybe there's other reasons, but I think it's a no-brainer to, to just for the ease of simplicity and and like what you're saying, just fewer things to deal with. No API is is the best API. Yeah, and that implies that you don't have to roll that API change out <laughs> to other folks, you know? That's always a challenge when you've got a front end that has a separate deployment path. You know, maybe it's going through a CDN. And so I have to deploy that out separately. So it's going to be out of sync with my API or I have to roll out API. So just you have to consider more. You have to plan more, which is totally doable. Teams do it all the time. But I would argue that it's still adding additional friction. It's things that you have to do that otherwise you wouldn't have to do. I have to like coordinate releases, you know, between these code bases all the time. Just, you know, this one's got to go out first. (laughs) This one's got to handle both for a small moment. 
you know, and then and then you have to deprecate or remove or whatever, you know, and follow. It's like a three or four phase like deploy sometimes. If you're able to avoid that, man, that's that removes a lot of friction. So I think the biggest justification I hear about why I have to have an API, why I can't use LiveView, is because of the client. I have multiple clients. I have an iOS, I have an Android, maybe there's a desktop, right? That's the big one. That makes some sense, right? There's some reasons for that. But I think there's a lot of other situations where they say, you know, we need to have an API because our customers are going to connect to us through our API. So we want to dog food our own API and make sure it works. So that argument, I think, is not a convincing one for me. Oh, I've been there and done that. And that's a hard path to to walk because <laughs> you're always, you're all like, we were always building things for ourselves that we didn't want to hand out to our customers, right? Like we, sure we dog fed, I don't know. What's the past tense of this word? We dog fooded <laughs> a whole slew of APIs, but there was a whole other slew of APIs that just like was very specific to this one page we were building and no one ever would use it. The other thing that I've seen is when you start getting into mobile clients, right? If you have a team where you say we have a native Android and a native iOS and they're whole different teams and we want that because we want the best experience, the one that fits in with the platform, right? I've seen that before. But what ends up happening is that the look and feel and the design experience that is native to that iOS or Android requires different data at, on different screens, you know, the profile might look different. The way you do your settings is going to be different. And they're already making different API calls for these clients. It's not like you have one true API because you're always having to make allowances for the type of client that it is. Honestly, I think that's the best argument for GraphQL is to be able to customize those queries of what you want per client. Really, I still believe that the argument of we need an API for our customers, so we should use our own API I think that's a bad argument. It's like saying, because my customer requires a REST API, because for whatever reason, GraphQL is still too new for people, that because my customer needs that, I need to handicap my team, my productivity to match. Like, I, I don't buy that. If you're a grocery store and you need your customers want carrots, you have to eat carrots. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think a lot of it comes down to the business you're trying to build, right? If we're talking about like starting businesses or small businesses with few developers, like you just take the liberties that you can to get your MVP out as soon as possible. And if it's an API business, then tough luck, you're going to have to build an API, right? But if it's not, this is one thing that you could avoid to save a lot of time and a lot of complexity, right? No, that's a good point. Like, you know, if your business is something like Stripe, where you are providing an API to developer community, that is your interface. Now, you still have additional interface, which is documentation and, you know, the admin area and all of that could be using the API. It could be live view if you wanted. There's another scenario that reminds me of, which is that you still can have a live view front end that talks to like a GraphQL backend you can still be consuming your own API and still have live view. What you're removing is all the JavaScript, all of the separate deployment, the versioning. It's like you're still getting some of those benefits. Yeah, so, so coming back to like your point, you, know, you, you said that you believe people still underestimate the impact of live view. 
And so we talked about like just removing friction, and I agree. I think LiveView does a wonderful job of that. I still think that there's something just missing, you know, to be a complete solution. And I just want to, re- you know, remind myself really, when was LiveView released? The first version was announced at that ElixirConf where Chris McCord was showing it off. Was that 2018? Yeah, so it was announced in 2018. I think it released a couple months later, if I remember right. So let's just say it's 2018. It's been, you know, three and a half years, three and a half years since it released. There's still things missing from it. I think they're actively being worked on. But and what, what, what would you say are some things that are still missing from LiveView? The big one that I'm still waiting for, there's two really. And it's like the component props. I know that's actively being worked on. I, I haven't been tracking it to see where it is, but that's something that's kind of come out of the Surface UI project, I think. It's modified. It's not like a, a lift and shift, drop it in. But I think there's a lot of value there. When you're starting to build large component sets, having the component props be something that's more part of the interface, something that you can get compile time feedback on. Am I using this live view component correctly? I think that's going to be really helpful, and I'm really looking forward to that one. I wonder that because it's been three and a half years since LiveView was introduced, I think there was probably like a, a first wave of excitement, like, oh my gosh, this is going to change everything. Three and a half years later, we're still working on stuff like, like what you just mentioned. And LiveView still isn't 1.0. Do you think the time it's taken for LiveView to get to 1.0 has actually hurt you know, adoption? Probably has, just because... Kate and I worked together at a previous job and we were very early adopters of LiveView. And there was some pain with that. Being an early adopter and every release, there was breaking changes. And you know, honestly, not assigning any kind of blame, that's what happens when you're trying to figure out a whole new technology. You know, There's a lot of shifting sand going on. I think a lot of that has really settled in. And I think maybe some people have been passing on LiveView Right, perhaps rightly so for their project. It wasn't the right time for their project. But I think it's something that we need to kind of bring up again and say, have you looked at LiveView lately? <laughs> you know, because it's, it's really solid. It's really doing good. And I, I get a lot of value from LiveView just in my own projects, my own side things that I do for fun. I'm getting a lot of leverage here. Now that Heeks templates are out, that that's the last big breaking change. You can use it. I'm sure there will never be another one. It's safe now. And that was a big change. That was a big breaking change. It's true. <laughs> I still have a lot of warnings in my projects because <laughs> I haven't converted all of the EEX templates. <laughs> yeah. The other big thing that I think we're missing, and, and Chris McCord mentioned this in our interview with him recently, is this idea of component libraries, of like the pre-built, community-maintained component libraries for live view. I think that is going to be a big deal. But I think because of the latest releases of live view, where we have things like slots, where it becomes more composable and reusable, then I think this is the time where we're going to start to see component libraries being created. I see value in, in these things as I've worked at places where we've used libraries and they've definitely sped us up. But I've also worked at places where we've sunk a lot of time into making our own company-wide component libraries. And that was a huge time sink. Uh, <laughs> huge. Was that because like Tailwind UI just came out and you're just like, just let, just let me use that? You no, know? <laughs> this was before the days of Tailwind. Companies can get really set on like, oh, 
this is going to be a huge productivity boost. We first just need to spend two years building this library. <laughs> and then maybe we'll break even 15 years later, and it will be such a huge pro- productivity boost during those 15 years that we're making up that lost time. <laughs> I don't know. Well, well, speaking of productivity boosters, I think Tailwind UI, in recent years at least, really helped be its productivity booster for a lot of like startup apps. Like even... Uh, the tracker, the the non-tracking tracker that's fighting Google Analytics. Plausible? Plausible, yeah. You go to their website and like instantaneously I saw Tailwind UI components in there. And that's not a dig on them. It it still looks good. It was just, you know, one of those things that lets you you ship faster. So yeah, I can see both sides of that. I, I don't think it's useful to put so much time into creating your own, you know, design system with Phoenix Live View like components. Uh, but on the other hand, I think things like Tailwind UI, which we don't really have a component system like that for Phoenix right now, and, and it's probably due to license requirements that make that challenging. So maybe maybe we can solve that somehow, and I'm not, I just don't know how. Maybe just a conversation with Tailwind Labs is all, all it would take. Maybe there's something there, and, I, and I, I'm certain that there are other projects not based on Tailwind UI are going to fill, fill the gap. I want to change the subject a little bit here. So Mark, you work at Fly. And Fly is known for having servers close to the user. That's their differentiator. And I made an earlier point here I want to bring back up again, which was, you know, that Elixir's solutions like PubSub and clustering, I didn't know how to apply them to my app. But now after working in the Elixir for a while, now I know how to use that. Like those are tools I know how to use and when to use. But the infrastructure was usually hard to get to support that. Now that you you know are at Fly and there's a solution, I think, that helps leverage that, that is a, a superpower, I think, that folks may not really realize is there. And there's, there's a couple of contributions that you, you and Fly have made to really help push that forward. So tell, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, first, I just want to mention that I'm not saying any of this because of sponsorship or anything. No one asked me to say any of this. I joined Fly.io because I was truly excited about what they were letting us do with Elixir and how it actually worked. And as many people know, Chris McCord, creator of Phoenix, he joined Fly.io because he also felt really excited about what it represents. And so I did want to just kind of hit on some of these points to make sure people understand. Because like, we talk about Live View, right? And one of the reasons I still hear people complain or disregard Live View is saying, well, it still takes too long to do the round trip to the server. My response is, well, yes, if your server is over 4,000 miles away from your users, it's going to be slower. The speed of light is going to put a minimum amount of time on that. And then you're like talking about internet packets being routed around the internet and getting generally pushed in the right direction until they get to their destination. So yeah, it's going to be slower. One of the things that we have figured out in the whole tech scene in the development industry is we figured out CDNs, which is... There's a lot of value in putting my assets, my CSS, my JavaScript, my images close to the user because they get delivered a whole lot faster. And what Fly was able to really do is say, well, what if you just put your whole server closer to the user? Then you don't have to have a whole CDN. You don't have to have a separate deployment. And that's like another point where you can remove friction. Like the whole idea of, yeah, I want a CDN for good experience, but what if I can actually remove the whole CDN remove all that friction, and still have an awesome experience by putting my server close to people. I'll just mention a couple ways the technology that happened to make this work, 
right? There's AnyCast. It's a DNS technology that will take you as a visitor to my website, ABC, Pet Food, whatever. And if you go and look that up, you will be directed to the geographically or internet time closest server to where you are, right? So I'm automatically being directed to the closest one. I'm not having to say, you know, here, do the subdomain to put me in the right server in the right region, nothing like that, right? You automatically get directed to the, the closest one. And then they have WireGuard private network, which automatically connects all of my servers, which are deployed in multiple regions. That's a super cool thing. I don't know how to do that with anything else. Like with AWS, having multiple data centers, multiple places, and having private networks connect them. Lots of YAML. Lots of YAML. I'm not able to do that. That's a recipe for how can I spend weeks getting hardly nothing done, like rather than just being productive. And I, w- I would add too, like even without the clustering and the wire guard and all the fancy stuff, like we had an example where I'm working now where we just wanted to deploy something close to a high profile customer. So we just went in and said, hey, just deploy geographically next door to where they live so that it demos just as snappy as possible. And that happens to be the only deployment, but why not? Like, because we can. So why why wouldn't we just deploy it in their backyard? So one of the things I think that is really special about the whole WireGuard private networking thing is it makes it really easy to do clustering, which solves a whole lot of problems for Elixir when you're going distributed because Elixir happens to be really good at distributed computing. It already has a lot of the fundamental ideas and concepts baked in, which is like processes that can be anywhere in any node in the cluster and it's a a globally accessible process ID. Things like that are just, they're not available in other languages, other frameworks. And so I just, I really feel like when you start moving your servers closer to the users, then a lot of those arguments for why LiveView might still not be a good fit because of the distance from, you know, your Australia customers to your Virginia data center. Yeah, that's far. It's going to be a, a worse experience. But if you're able to have them be physically closer, then you're just automatically having a better experience. And then that's efficiencies. Then you're not having to say, well, I have to like change the way I design my application to have all these optimistic UI patterns to say uh, that I, uh, I'll, I'll delete something and have it remove immediately, and then it might still fail. And, but then I have to figure out how to deal with that. It's like, well, what if I don't have to do any of that? What if I can have the efficiency, remove that friction, and just say, you're just, it's just fast enough? All right, so, so let's think about the real world then. I love that we have this like theoretical thing where if you just deploy your app closer to the user, everything's better. But the reality still is, is that there is still a single point of like storage, for example. So your database or, you know, what have you, you still have a single source of truth, not 10 single sources of truth that somehow magically talk to each other, right? I know in, in all of my apps, and maybe I'm not enterprisey enough to, you know, be outside of this scenario, but in all of my apps, I have a Postgres database. I got to source something. That's my single source. How do I solve that problem? I can't have a billion, you know, nodes up talking to, you know, still one Postgres database in Virginia. Because then I've like removed that benefit of having a bunch of nodes up. Like how, how, how does Fly solve that for, for anybody? That is a very interesting problem to solve. And honestly, a lot of the credit on this solution that we came up with, the credit goes to Chris McCord because he said, well, why, what if we just follow the transaction log 
and of the database. And so what that means is just kind of give a little background. So when you set up a, a high availability Postgres database in Fly, you automatically have a primary database and then you have a read replica. So if I say I want to deploy my app on the West Coast of the US and on the East Coast of the US, I probably want a database at both sides of that so that they're not having to cross the entire country to do a, a database query lookup. So they're going to go to the local database. And so that works really well for most applications because most web apps are a lot of reads. I'm reading, I'm seeing my page, I'm seeing the status, I'm seeing what's going on, and then I make a change. And then I do an insert or an update. But most of the access is reads. So if I can have my read-only database really close to me, that's fast. So with Fly, it's very easy to have a fast local database, but it might be read-only. So we introduced a library called Fly Postgres and a companion library called Fly RPC. Really, there's nothing that's Fly specific about this in terms of the code. It's just, it's depending on two different environment variables that happen to be there in Fly. So if we can figure out a good, clean way to make this separated and not anywhere specific to Fly, happy to do that. Just to explain what this is doing. So if I'm in a region where I have a read-only replica as my local database, then I just need to know that I'm at a local read-only database. And I need to be able to find the primary database. And that's where Elixir and clustering can do some amazing stuff that, frankly, other tech frameworks can't do. And it's where the nodes can talk to each other using the library, and they figure out who is in proximity to the primary database. And then you can just say, do an RPC call, which is message passing to processes in other places. Woohoo! Yes, Elixir. So all I'm doing is I'm saying, hey, I want to perform this operation over there on a server that's close to the physical database that has right access. And so it can do that. And then after it makes that database change, that insert, update, or delete, then it can query the local database for its LSN number which is a log sequence number. And it's an ever-increasing number, so I don't have to track specifics. I can basically do a greater than or less than comparison. Behind the scenes, the library says, I'm going to pass that LSN back to the location that has a replica. And then it can sit there and wait for the data to be replicated and block that single one process because it cares about this piece of data that's flowing across in that replication. Once that data is replicated and arrives at the replica, then it unblocks, queries the data, and I can go on. This is a general computing problem. If you introduce a read replica, then you have this problem that's often referred to as read your own rights problem. And that's the worst problem to have ever. Oh, man. That's like if you've ever been to a website, and I'm sure you have, and you like create a record, and then it creates and it takes you back to the index page, and it's, the record's not there. And then what are you doing? You're hitting refresh, right? It's like, did you lie to me? Did you not <laughs> just create the record? Why is, did you take me back and it's not here? The worst one is when like you do an update, like I changed the name of something, right? And then I go back to the index page and it's the wrong old name, right? It's like, did it not work? And then you go, but you hit refresh or something and oh, there it is because I'm hitting a read replica for my reads. Confuses the, the users of your application. Definitely not a great experience. And, and the developers too, probably. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I had, I had problems with that in previous job where we were integrating with an external service. And I, was, I would do an insert and then I would turn around immediately and ask for that data back because it was going to generate more data that I needed. 
and it wasn't there. And I'd have to like wait seven seconds for it to fully replicate <laughs> to the other server. So the other database that I happened to be directed to that I couldn't see, you know, it's like, yes, this is a general problem. What is amazing about this approach is being able to do a remote procedure call where I can say, perform this operation where you can do writes. Tell me where the log sequence number is after that comes back to the instance on the replica. Then I can wait for that data to be replicated and then continue on. So I can take a whole async problem that is just a general problem in tech today and I can make it synchronous. But because I've got processes and I'm, I'm not blocking anything for everyone else, no one else is getting slowed down by me waiting for this other 250 milliseconds of sync time to happen. Is that is that the average? Have you, I, I was curious of what that, that replication time would be. When I was developing this, I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out like, okay, what's the worst case? What, what can I do? And so I just, I was going from my Los Angeles nearest data center where I would, where I would connect to, and I put my primary database in Sydney, Australia. And so I was doing all of my primary writes to there and all my local reads in Los Angeles. The time was variable, but when I did really large operations where I'm doing lots of changes, then it was more noticeable that you'd see something. And that was still less than half a second, but it would be like something around 300 milliseconds. But for most single database read update modifications, you, almost, you don't even notice it. Well, so that's nice that you've, you've wrapped up the complexity of getting these, these reads after writes and, and the developer doesn't have to worry about it and the application works as expected. And I think if I remember browsing through the documentation of this library, you can also just fire and forget, right? If you're in a situation where you don't need to turn around and immediately see the, the result of the write, then you don't have to wait for that uh, replication to happen and you can pass in a, a an option or, or something like, just do this async and just fire it and I don't care about it and be done instantly. I actually spoke about this at ElixirConf, about this Fly Postgres library and how it helps you solve that globally deploying an application and still having a normal Phoenix app, right? A normal app that has a normal Postgres database. I'm not using anything like multi-master, Cassandra, eventually consistent, having to change the way I develop my code, how I write my business logic, having to do any of that. I presented about that and I just want to make sure people were aware this exists. If you have a replica in your data center, you're not on fly, that's fine. This can still help you. This library can still help you. And I'm happy to work with anyone who can help me figure out what those needs are and how you can identify that you should be talking to a primary or should not. And we can make the library even more generalizable. It all still comes back to efficiencies and cutting out friction. That's where I think that Elixir is able to do these things, right? It's live view because of the concurrency model, because of processes, because of supervision. I can cut out massive amounts of front-end code. I can cut out all these layers, these APIs and everything that I may not need for my situation. And if I want to do something as a small team or even solo project that I'm working on in my own time, every bit of friction that I can cut out makes it that much more enjoyable to continue working on and that much faster for me to, to develop. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I remember creating some like side projects and I, I, my goal was just to, just to try to use LiveView. And one of the things that I did was I created a uh, diff generator. I wanted to see, you know, like if I generated a Phoenix project three years ago, 
and my my project is still using those defaults like what what do i need to change to like really upgrade to like phoenix 1.5 or 6 or whatever and using pubsub and using live view to like just orchestrate like a docker container running this this little bit of code and just copying the output of that and then doing a git diff just just that like it sounds really complicated but like live view just made that pop. I would not have done that without live view. Like no, in no way would I have been able to do that because I'm not a superstar developer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's why I like Phoenix live view, like gives, gives the maybe false impression that <laughs> like the stuff that we create in live view is like superpower kind of stuff. You know, like I basically made like a CI runner that just is hard coded to do a git diff at the end. And, that, and I, <laughs> I did that by myself, you know, and Deployed that. I think that's on Fly right now, actually, though it doesn't really technically need to be. It doesn't do the distributed stuff, but it was just easy to deploy. Yeah, like that's so, so uplifting. That's so empowering. That's so enjoyable. And that was just me. You know, like just to think of like how productive could you be if you had a team of developers running on this? That feels like it would be a dream, but I maybe I'm maybe I'm too much of a fanboy to see what the the the, the issues would be. It's interesting you say that, like the idea of like spending your personal time projects, right? Because I think with my own personal time projects, I might have like, well, I got two hours right now where I got no other responsibilities, nothing else I got to do. I can spend it working on this this passion I have, this this project idea. Or you can configure Webpack, Mark. <laughs> Come on. You don't like Webpack? Yes. Oh, I'm joking. There's There's ways to do that a lot easier nowadays. But to the point, it's like when there's more layers, when there's more friction, there's less enjoyment. There maybe I'll like, oh, well, instead of doing that, maybe I'll play a game for a little bit. <laughs> I still make that decision. Because it's like, <laughs> oh, that, that's going to be a lot of work. I remember where I was at. Oh, yeah, that's going to be painful. You know, so it's just the whole idea of removing friction, removing those pain points. And then you talk about this idea of like, well, if you can take that idea, that mentality, that benefit and put it into a small team. Because I know uh, Kate and I used to work together at a company. Now we've since gone in different directions. But one of the things I saw that we were able to do, we had a team of three people coding in Elixir. And we were able to pump out features and progress at a a rate that the 12-person Java team could not match. And when they had important critical stuff that had to get done to make this client happy, sometimes they would just come to us and say, hey, what can you do to help make this happen for this client? And it was because of our ability to move faster. After hearing all this stuff, like it's, I, I get excited. I, I know it's, I know it's time, but your, your first point, you know, I just want to revisit, re, restate it, that you, you think that people are still underestimating the impact of live view. And ultimately that's like, you know, how do we, how do we grow the community? And, you know, the tools should speak for themselves. And I think at this point, you know, we're, we're, we're there, I think in most cases, but I think we're getting really close to that for the component library kind of stuff. We're on the road to it. I can already see us marching that that direction, and I think now is a good time to to pick up a, a Phoenix Live View and and check out Elixir, and you know consider deployment strategies that don't that don't lock you down. <laughs> you know that implies Fly is a good a good option here, <laughs> even if you didn't want to use Fly. That's fine. Like you could still take advantage of all, all these things. You know, one thing at a time. I think now is a good time to go check out Phoenix Live View. And it feels weird to say that because it's pre 1.0, but I think, I think we're getting there. I think, I think it's time. 
I agree. I think it is time to check it out, especially if you have kind of been on the fence. Maybe you've been that backend dev who's been helping build the API for a front-end team. There are great ways to start bringing in Live View. I know Cade was able to do that in a project at work where they said, hey, this for this feature, we can have an admin style interface and deliver something very quickly. And that's a great way to start getting the tooling set up, to start getting confidence built, to start saying, I get now how this works. And wow, we were able to build this feature with fewer people and less time than it would have taken our two teams with a whole separate front end and an API and everything else in between to make that happen. So yeah, I just encourage people to check it out. It is an awesome tool. I love it. It is a different way. Of, it's a different mindset. You know, you go from the whole request response stateless idea that you've been living with forever into now where you just have something that's stateful. It's different. But I think there's a lot of business value and opportunities to just make it a more fun experience. Well, thank you for hanging with us to the end of this discussion. I'm sure we'll continue to think about these things and we'll probably the topics may come up again in the future. We'd love to hear from you what you think about how efficiencies can be improved and what makes you efficient. Feel free to message us on Twitter, links in the show notes, or you can always send an email, show at thinkingelixir.com. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.